Hi everyone, welcome to Reverb. I'm Alex Helberg. And I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Sophie Wadzak. On today's Reblurb, we're really excited to bring you an exploration of the concept of irony. Oh yes, we're just so excited to be talking about this. It's not like I've got grading to finish, a dissertation chapter to write, a social life to pretend I still have. <laughs> I'm positively thrilled to be here. Alex, I'm detecting a little bit of sarcasm in your tone. Oh no, me? Sarcastic? <laughs> what would I have to be sarcastic about? I just love sitting in a dingy, cramped office with a broken thermostat, around mics and laptops talking about <laughs> what are we even talking about again irony i've got to say man it feels like you're laying it on kind of thick if you're not comfortable with this why don't you just say so i mean we're your friends you can tell us how you feel just be sincere oh i can can i well thank you for the permission to be sincere master wadzik Dude, you have brainworms. Okay, okay, settle down, you two. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, like the different kinds of irony we often run across in discourse, the philosophical dimensions of irony, and finally, some of the more complex, ironic phenomena we see taking place in digital media spaces like Twitter. So let's stop fighting and get to it. When you think of irony, or the term ironic, the first thing that probably pops into your head, at least if you're like us, is the classic Alanis Morissette song, Ironic. In it, Morissette sings chorus after verse listing off unfortunate situational happenstances. Followed by the refrain, The deeper irony of this song, of course, is that none of these things are actual examples of irony, in a prescriptive rhetorical sense. Most are just unfortunate or unlucky at best. Whether intentional or not, this misuse of the term ironic adds an extra layer of comedic irony to the song. In other words, it's ironic to call things which aren't really ironic, ironic. Apart from hearing songs about it on the radio, Many of us probably remember learning about irony in English or language arts classes in grade school. These lessons on irony most likely focused on three different types, verbal, situational, and dramatic. Each type of irony is created, usually in a work of literature such as a novel, poem, or play, when a reader knows something that is at odds with the actions taking place in the story, or what is being said by one of its characters. Verbal irony most often takes the form of sarcasm, in which a person or character says something that they clearly do not mean. For example, I just love it when my audio editing software crashes and I have to go back through editing hours worth of podcast content. Clearly I don't actually mean this. I'm communicating the opposite through the use of verbal irony, created both by my inflection and my assumption that you, the listener, will know that re-editing a bunch of podcast content is not actually that much fun. In contrast, situational irony is created when an outcome deviates from our expectations, such as a twist ending at the conclusion of a movie. M. Night Shyamalan is particularly known for employing this device in many of his films. Ironically though, Shyamalan became so well known thanks to the broad success of films like The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs, that his surprise endings came to have much less capacity to surprise audiences, particularly in later works such as The Village and The Happening. Compared to verbal and situational irony, dramatic irony is a bit more complex. This type of irony is created when one person, such as an audience member, knows something that another person, such as a character in a play, does not, which creates a sense of tension. To illustrate with another classic example, many of us likely remember the dramatic irony that culminates at the end of Romeo and Juliet. 
when, spoiler alert, Romeo finds Juliet in a deep sleep, presumes her to be dead, and decides to take his own life alongside his lover. The irony here is created by the fact that we, the audience, know that Juliet is not really dead, and that Romeo not knowing this will result in terrible consequences. These examples can create humorous or dramatic effects, but they all share something in common. Each strategy for producing irony forces us to hold understandings of multiple, sometimes contradictory, truths or realities against one another. It is the dissonance between these multiple truths that creates the ironic effect. Viewed through this lens, irony becomes a more complex concept. It makes us reflect on what we know to be true, or at least what we think is true, and test it against other truths or realities that are presented to us. As we've all probably experienced, this can sometimes create some tension. For instance, if you've ever made a sarcastic remark that someone else did not understand, or worse, took seriously, they clearly did not comprehend the actual truth you intended, but took its truth at face value instead. But irony can be even more complicated in certain contexts. Many of the examples we've just discussed are clear cases of what Wayne Booth calls stable irony, when the meaning behind the ironic device is easily interpreted. Stable irony usually has one very clear, finite meaning that doesn't invite more than one interpretation. Of course, this isn't always how everyday discourse works. Much more often we come across examples of what Booth calls unstable irony, or an ironic statement that contains a multitude of different possible interpretations of its meaning. This type of irony tends to be much more playful and potentially problematic, depending on how it's used. A great example of unstable irony can be found in the article Irony as a Viewpoint Phenomenon by Vera Tobin and Michael Israel, in which they begin with a joke from stand-up comedian Sarah Silverman. You know, everybody blames the Jews for, for killing Christ, and then the Jews try to pass it off on the Romans. You know, I'm one of the few people that believes it was the blacks. Tobin and Israel explain that the unstable irony of this joke owes to its unclear object of ironic criticism. Silverman clearly does not actually believe the punchline of her joke, and it's very likely that no one actually holds such a belief. As the authors write, the absence of any obvious viewpoint one could share with the speaker, or any obvious way of figuring out where her viewpoint may really be, generates interpretive tension. Part of Silverman's edgy appeal rests on the difficulty of decoding her ironic intentions. Is the joke on racists? on the audience, or on political comedy. This phenomenon might also be used to describe an emerging trend in an online discourse, which has been colloquially referred to as irony poisoning. In essence, someone who has been poisoned by irony has spent too much time consuming and or producing the kind of edgy humor that pokes fun at broader discourses themselves, such as conversations about racism, sexism, and other serious political or social issues. Borrowing again from Wayne Booth, we might say that someone who is irony poisoned has accepted the premise of unstable irony as a worldview, which holds that since the universe is inherently absurd, all statements are subject to ironic undermining. Another more recent example of unstable irony leading to irony poisoning can be found in Todd Phillips' 2019 film Joker, in which Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, makes an off-color joke while on a TV talk show. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's the police, ma'am. Your son's been hit by a drunk driver. He's dead. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you cannot joke about that. Yeah, that's not funny, Arthur. That's not the kind of humor we do on this show. After being chastised by the host, played by Robert De Niro, Arthur begins a monologue about how humor, like morality, is subjective, and that there is no absolute truth to anything. Only what the masses believe is good or bad, funny or in bad taste. 
In the face of this absurdity, he argues, who is to say it's not acceptable to laugh at jokes which derive their ironic force from morbidity and the macabre? Comedy is subjective, Murray. Isn't that what they say? All of you, the system that knows so much, you decide what's right or wrong the same way that you decide what's funny or not. At this point, we can see that too much irony can lead to some fairly negative and harmful worldviews. But might it be possible to use irony for liberatory purposes? To use it in ways that opens us up to new possibilities and ways of viewing the world? To get at the liberatory potential of irony, a good starting point is a classic essay by Friedrich Nietzsche from 1873, entitled On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. In this essay, Nietzsche develops an entire theory of language through a meditation on lying and truth-telling. For Nietzsche, a liar is, quote, a person who uses the valid designations, the words, in order to make something which is unreal appear to be real. He claims that our aversion to liars derives not from the immorality of the act of lying itself, its untruthfulness, but rather from the negative consequences we assume it will produce. In other words, the act of deception is only deemed immoral, Nietzsche claims, because we assume that bad things will happen to us when we are deceived, operating under a false reality. But Nietzsche takes things a step further, in a way that might be read as playfully ironic. He goes on to claim that this distinction between truth-telling and lying is actually ridiculous, because words themselves cannot ever be adequate stand-ins of the things they are supposed to represent. As he puts it, quote, we separate things according to gender, designating the tree as masculine and the plant as feminine. What arbitrary assignments! How far this oversteps the canons of certainty! We speak of a snake. This designation touches only upon its ability to twist itself, and could therefore also fit a worm. What arbitrary differentiations! What one-sided preferences, first for this, then for that property of a thing! Essentially, Nietzsche argues that words can only ever be partial representations of the world, and thus only communicate partial truths about reality. In this way, we might say that for Nietzsche, all communication is ironic in some way. When speaking and writing, we are always necessarily considering the multiple meanings and potential truths that our words and statements could be communicating, as well as the consequences or effects produced by those words and statements. Writing over a century later, the philosopher and literary critic Richard Rorty took Nietzsche's theory of language and extrapolated it into a more coherent worldview, which he called ironism. Under Rorty's formulation, ironism is a stance that holds that all viewpoints, all truths, are merely partial truths, and that no one way of seeing the world can be considered absolute or objective. In this way, ironism recognizes people's propensity to change. It holds that our attitudes and beliefs may be modified given new contingencies or deepened understandings of the world. Ironists are not static and unchanging in their worldviews. They distance themselves from absolute certainty and make decisions about what they believe as they learn and grow. In simpler terms, Richard Rorty describes ironists as people who have humility toward their own worldview. They do not regard any one ideology as absolute or all-encompassing, but exercise a critical reflexivity in choosing which viewpoints are best suited to the context that they are acting within. The ironist worldview forms the foundation of Richard Rorty's concept of pragmatism, and can be instructive for us as people who use rhetoric to articulate our views of reality and our place within it. 
and it raises important questions such as how can we recognize the shortcomings of our own worldviews? And what are the best ways to test our viewpoints against the views and ideologies of others? To get us talking in more practical terms about these different conceptions of irony, and since we are all extremely online, we thought it would be fun to have a conversation about the different ways we see irony being deployed on our favorite social media website, twitter.com. So we've each collected some examples of our kind of favorite uh, or potentially least favorite kinds of irony that we see being <laughs> you deployed. You have to judge yourself. Yes. Whether yeah. we like them or not. Right. Yeah. The listener will be able to pass their own judgment on these as well. Uh, so the one, I, I grouped mine into a category category that I am calling the hot take plausible deniability combo. Mm. So essentially we could describe this ironic phenomena as somebody posting something that is just letting like a purely unadulterated thought pass from your brain onto the keyboard without passing it through any sort of judgment of whether or not it is a good idea to post that or without reference to the context of how it will be received. And these of course can range in degrees, uh, but the one that I picked as an example was one that uh, kind of made a splash back in September of this year. This one comes from someone named Matthew Zeitlin. He says on here, it's funny how many committed leftists have the cultural tastes of like a 19th century minor aristocrat or bourgeois. They love reading Balzac and troll. I don't know if I'm Trollope. pronouncing that. Trollope. Trollope. <laughs> uh, read the financial press, listen to orchestral music and operas. <laughs> And I think the the response that this one got, I don't, I actually, I need to check and see if this one got uh, got ratio. It did get ratio. It did get it did get a little 586 bit. Five hundred eighty six replies, eighty seven yep. retweets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so essentially, yeah. Obviously, people had a very stern reaction to this. Many of whom, in some ways, like may have sort of proved the point by being like a little bit too scoldy about like, well, actually, these are uh, important works of you know the canon or whatever. Um, but uh, but more than anything, I mean, what I think is so interesting about this tweet is not just the you know the fact that it kind of goes above and beyond i mean just in the, even in the way that it's phrased like you know saying it's funny how is kind of like you know that you're being set up for a hot take because it's sort of like oh look i'm about to make a, a an incisive commentary about things that i something that i see out in the wild but in addition there was a reply to that that also i found really interesting and this is something that you'll sometimes see if you're if you're a connoisseur of hot takes on twitter uh is somebody posted a response to this tweet that says I can't tell if this is a joke tweet and then uh, Matthew Zeitlin responds yeah I try to maintain plausible deniability so that if people get mad at me I can say I was joking <laughs> which, which is, is like he's like lifts back the veil right like it's this to me is I think kind of a, a, a rare tweet in which rare, it is sincere. like it seems genuine and yeah. sincere yeah. yeah yeah but also at then it's like you wonder like is is it tongue in cheek in itself? Like it's very right. hard to parse. Even even though I can't tell if this is a joke tweet or not. Like was that mm -hmm. said in sincerity or is that itself like a goof on the right? Like it's it's yeah. hard to parse. Yeah, and, and, I, and I do think that the way that we process these things is always conditioned by who's making the tweet. And mm -hmm. oh, yes. and I will say that I don't know if this guy's current avatar is the same Avi that he had when he made the tweet originally. Right, but. He looks like an irony bro. I mean, he looks yes. like oh, yeah. uh, like Lucian Wintrich or another like <laughs> horrifically awful like black pilled ironic person on Twitter. Oh my god! Um, by that I just mean like someone with no real opinions. It's just all edgy in in one way or another. 
Yep. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I, I think that leads me to believe that this is not a serious statement yeah. at all. And it was designed to piss people off. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of like that. That's sort of the direction that a lot of these tweets do seem to go is sort of like, I'm just saying this to be provocative. I don't really mean it. But the irony is that, you know, I'm going to end up pissing a lot of people off. I mean, there's some, like I said, there are degrees of this. There's the kind of like trolling irony bro uh, kind of insincere posting of this that's meant to provoke a reaction. There's also, I think, the other few just sort of like discourse examples that I noticed that I actually, I got a lot of this crowdsourced from Twitter uh, where I was uh, saying that one of my favorite types of irony that kind of fits into this is ending a tweet with, in this essay, I will, uh, after you Mm -hmm. deliver kind of like a convoluted uh, sort of like social theory that's kind of half-baked, not really thought out. We're saying, you know, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Mm -hmm. You know, treating these, uh, acknowledging that there's a certain amount of self-seriousness that we have when we post certain sincere things like that. And in a way that hedges it, it, it yeah. sort of distances us a little bit from those takes that, you know, we haven't really had the chance to think all the way through, but that we are, you know, still nonetheless interested in getting feedback on seemingly. And I want to point out the genre commentary that's built into those those jokes of yeah. this essay, I will, yes. and thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Like, it, the person is acknowledging that they've written in a style that's not typical to the tweet it doesn't belong it doesn't belong it would belong more in an essay or in a a ted talk Mm -hmm. and so as you say like it's it it assumes that the normative way of tweeting is completely ironic stupid and you know sort of like meaningless exactly uh which is kind of dark yeah, it is. It's a it's a little bleak, but but even still, I yeah, I don't know. I still I, I like those kinds of, of things. I think that it's that gets a little bit more at the sort of like Rordian ironism that gets that we discussed in our uh, in the concept breakdown, where you know we are acknowledging that like we have these beliefs and we have these things that we're staking a claim in right now, but we're also acknowledging that it's like yeah, I get I understand that this is partial, this is half baked, and you know I'm just I'm saying this to just kind of put it out in the world, but I don't actually. Like, I'm not going to defend this to the death. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to I'm not going to die on that hill, uh, right. which is another <laughs> another interesting phenomenon that you see people doubling down on really awful takes and and yeah, d- picking a bad hill to die on. That's so to speak. kind of. So, yes. Yeah, so I have I was sort of looking around for examples of irony and there's one which you can't it's not just the tweet itself. I have to kind of set this up. OK. Right. So somebody in real life got a tattoo of baby yoda we love baby yoda oh we, yes we stand baby yoda we do. no we so, don't okay <laughs> some of us do. well anyway so <laughs> somebody got a tattoo on their arm of baby yoda drinking a can of white claw which is a uh, like alcoholic seltzer for the uninitiated that became um, very um sort of trendy uh, yes. this past summer yes yeah and you might say i mean the the tattoo itself is super you know zeitgeisty right um yes. baby yoda drinking a white claw is about as late 2019 as I can really imagine. Mm-hmm. So um, so this person in real life got this tattoo. Another person whose handle is boring as heck um, saw the tweet of them sort of posting about it in a proud way, right. stole the pictures, and was like, hey, it's me. I got this tattoo. Enjoy it, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of his... Because it's so dumb, right? Like, who actually gets that tattoo? So they... well, it becomes contextually irrelevant, like, right. a month later. Yeah. So they tweeted about it as if it was theirs, even though you know, the understanding is, if you know this person, they didn't get this tattoo. It's right. a goof on the person it's who really scam. did. Right, yes. it's a scam. Yep. So everybody who who knows that it's not really his tattoo yep. is here 
replying like, oh, cool, cool tattoo, man. Oh, great job. Great post, great tattoo, you know. But the person whose tattoo it really is, is incensed by this and keeps replying to every comment. Hey, it's my tattoo. No, that's my tattoo. It's mine. And then everybody who was applying to the original goof tweet is like, "Uh, this guy's trying to make it seem like your tattoo is his tattoo, man. Like, they're all in on it. Except for the person whose tattoo it really is, who's like infuriated that somebody else is taking credit for this dumbest of all tattoos in the whole world so it's like so goofy because everybody knows it's not really his but they're all pretending like they do just to sort of like anger this person who is genuinely and sincerely wants credit for maybe one of the dumbest tattoos I've ever seen. So it's like a... And there may also <laughs> be people in these replies who do think he really right. got the tattoo. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, no, that's so for it's sure. kind of, it's taken off, it's taken a life of its own because, you know, social circles as they exist on Twitter are sort of invisible unless you're in them, right? Yes. So there's plenty yep. of people who genuinely think this is his tattoo. The person whose tattoo it really is doesn't like that. But yeah. all the people who know it's not his tattoo keep, you know, pretending. sincerely pretending like, oh, cool tattoo, oh, this other idiot. It's pretending mm-hmm. it's his, but we know it's yours, just to make it even matter. But to me, it's silly because if that was my tattoo, I would not want the whole universe to know that. I would right. be, I would think like the next morning I would wake up and be like, what in the world did I just do? Yeah. So it's like silly. I I, I don't know. There's just like so many levels of like who's in on the joke and to what extent. And so are many oh, contingent yeah. realities, like right. yes. so many different possible versions of the truth here, mm-hmm. just all collapsed into one yeah. thread. And that's why, like you were saying beautifully, like it, you need the context to understand who you know. This is Stefan Heck, who some of you may remember. This was the person who single-handedly, I think, well, at first single-handedly brought down the Jeremy Renner app uh, for what reasons we will not say. I'm pretty sure that was him. Wasn't I think it, it was him. I think yeah. it was him. Yeah. Yeah. Know about that? But the, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's we don't no, have we don't, we, we, we won't we won't have time to explain that. But sure. he's known for doing these like in, extremely in depth trolls, Ho- hoaxes, hoaxes on that Twitter, yeah. that you know that that results in yeah you know taking things to a level where to a, it to a le- yeah it, it affects reality and people really like you can get lost in the layers of irony. You well, know, I think it's interesting because to think about like dramatic irony, right, which we yes. talked about earlier, right? Like there's this idea of the the player. Mm-hmm. On the stage and the audience, yes. and that's sort of a, a binary. Like you're yep. either a player or you're watching. Mm-hmm. But on Twitter, there's so many different Calvin, like you were saying. Like there's so many different levels of audience that like yes. the the Venn diagram of who knows like the complete context of this joke and all the people on the various sidelines. It's much more complex than that, which I think is like something sort of unique to this website or yes. or the internet, right? That you yeah. can have so many different levels of audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Did you want to talk about any of your other um, examples? Oh, that so, are... so yeah, let me see. You know, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the OK Boomer, oh, yes. you know, line. And then there was that article that, that ran, I guess, about a month ago mm-hmm. that uh, an executive who works for the AARP, quote, claps back at oh, that yes. viral OK Boomer joke by saying, OK, millennials, well, we're actually the ones with the money. <laughs> As if that's a legitimate response, but like the whole, po- like, right, that's... <laughs> that's the whole point right like you yeah the boomers have all the money that's what we're mad that's what millennials right. are angry about right. so the idea that this is a genuine reply to that okay boomer trend by being like yeah i'm gonna confirm all of your suspicions about what it means to be a boomer yeah we've got all the money haha ha. like right could you say something could you be any more boomery than this, that this is dramatic irony again. Yes, yeah exactly yeah. Right. like they thought that was like an own or something but anybody who it's not an own. You're just yeah. confirming the, I don't know, the idea that that's a negation of, of anything doesn't make any sense. But they clearly, she clearly. It reminds me of that that 
Twitter trend when people say like narrator colon it wasn't yes. yes right <laughs> yeah like yeah. there's for for everyone who the okay boomer slogan was actually actually had currency with originally yeah this just confirms all of the associations right um, with boomer culture and boomer identity right? yeah but it, I'm sure to you know the boomers who are on Twitter which I assume there are you know maybe that would have been which again sort of I think speaks to this idea that like there's no longer just like audience and i mean to what extent there was ever just one audience but like watching a a shakespearean play you're in the audience and you're Mm -hmm. in a group of people and that's the audience but here like you've got the boomer audience you've got the millennial audience you've got the who are you know all these different people and like how well that resonates as a true response to the okay boomer joke varies considerably depending on who it is that's reading this and whether or not i'm like i'm sure there's boomers out there that be like yeah (laughs) yeah like sick own i guess yeah no from i mean but from yeah from another audience's perspective this is just like just to name the trend like i mean this is what we would call like a self own right um right. where it's sort of you you don't know because of the instability of audience yes. you don't know exactly who is going to be receiving this and therefore mm-hmm. you don't really know who the or there can be multiple butts of the joke because of these sort of like vastly different contextual surrounds that these different audiences are coming from they will interpret this in vastly you know even diametrically opposed ways of like who won that argument or who actually got the burn in yeah yeah exactly. that's great for sure. uh, calvin do you want to take us through some of your examples yeah i'm happy to these are some of my favorite sort of ironic slogans that have gained currency on twitter you know in the past few years um the first one is extremely normal mm-hmm. you know my understanding of the phrase extremely normal is that i mean this is just situational comedic irony i mean right. this is like the writer or the tweeter is deliberately identifying something that is so shockingly abnormal that is like so horrific and bad and in a way it's a response to the kind of like viral slogan post 2016 of this is not normal Mm -hmm. right yes that you know all of these political events happening in the trump era we're supposed to remind ourselves this is not normal Mm -hmm. don't get used to it don't normalize it right and so people saying extremely normal are kind of replying to that perhaps referencing it through comedic examples and so this account matt binder embeds a video of donald trump at a press conference uh like hunching down and grabbing a a glass of water with with both hands like two hands like with two hands between (laughs) being asked a question many writes just an extremely normal way to drink out of a small glass of water right and you know if you are watching, if you're reading the tweet, like the video is looping as you're reading this and it just kind of <laughs> creates this perfectly multimodal experience mm-hmm. of the abnormality of right now. Yeah. That yeah. this is the president, that that's how he drinks a glass of water. Yep. Yeah. And the, the glass of water is that small and it's, yeah, it's just none of it's normal. Yeah. The, the looping, yeah. I think, adds a kind of an interesting because it's like at first, like you see it and then the more you watch it, you're like, oh my God. But then you watch it enough times you're like yeah that's how he drinks it you know what i mean it's like you like go through your own journey of like is yeah. this I, I don't know i think it's funny how you can get in the same Do way that that like this is normal like is like a, a turning over of like this is not the genuine mm-hmm. you know this is not normal like right we're already it, desensitized it normalizes right, right. yeah 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 as you're watching it the looping kind of yeah. hypnotizes yeah. you yeah right. you and become after desensitized a while, you think, oh you yeah. should yeah. that is a normal way to drink a glass of water <laughs> in some <laughs> <laughs> like, 
That's perfectly yeah, fine. I d- drink water though, like that. Yeah, exactly. On. I mean, yeah. it is in some ways. I feel like I mean, not to overextend a theory. Hot take and coming, but like that kind of thing is kind of a uh, that seems like this is almost sort of like a metonym for like the way that like just the news works on the internet more generally. The more you are yeah. repeatedly shown just weird, like abnormal. That's why the phrase "this is not normal" came about in the first place. To my understanding, is because we we have a the sense of like we are going to get sick of this stuff and we're going to get tired if we're just constantly being battered by mm-hmm. news stories that overwhelm us with our over you know just overburden us with the idea that we can't really do anything about the stuff that's happening we can't you know we can't <laughs> not that we would be able to make an intervention into like the way that somebody drinks water but like <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it works. It functions that way to just, you know, yeah, to create that sense of like, well, whether it's normal or not, it, it's happening on a normalized basis right. <laughs> that, you and know, it's and we're stuck in the loop. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, related to this, my next my next example is uh, another instance of sort of a I mean, I would say it's a stretch of language that arguably was popularized by the president current president but has kind of seeped into everyday usage especially on twitter and that's the phrase you hate to see it oh yes and so there's a tweet from malika jabali where she writes the man who campaigned and won off being a community organizer she's talking about president obama Mm -hmm. is now deriding the activist wing lmao you hate to see it this is an earnest statement it's an it's an earnest critique of obama i think but the incorporation of such a Trumpian turn of phrase. You folks, hate you hate to see it. We really see we it. really hate to see it, folks. Lends an ironic distance to the critique that maybe contributes to the legitimization of the critique. I'm not sure wh- yeah. what's happening there, but I, I loved it as an example of just throwing that in and, and how yeah. often people just throw in these very strange... Uh, language patterns that Trump has popularized. Yeah, I'm I'm I really so I mean, it's important, I think, also to reference the tweet that this is it's quote tweeting. Right. uh, uh, Just a news bit that says Obama wades into the 2020 race warning of the dangers of listening to, quote, certain left leaning Twitter feeds or, quote, the activist wing of our party, which is, you know, underscoring the sort of ongoing tensions within the Democratic Party between a more sort of centrist and and left wing that's, you know, I I, I think that the uh, in part the you hate to see it uh, especially because it's prefaced by the LMAO right in some ways I mean I don't know I I, I don't follow Malika Jabali but I I'm assuming that this is probably she's on the left is, and she writes for current affairs right um, right yeah and has criticized Obama's legacy as oh, being right. like largely responsible for why Trump got elected so in many ways it's sort of like the implied phrase here is like you hate to see it but you knew it was coming right, right. <laughs> that's right. kind of what the irony here is implying and I think it's funny too how truly I mean in my experience like love and hate seem interchangeable like you can say oh you love to see it you hate to see it and it kind of has the same impact i think who's that was it charlie chaplin he was like life he said life up close is a tragedy but far away is a comedy right and there's that whole phrase comedy equals tragedy plus time which may have just be a bastardization of the chaplin yeah yeah but that idea that like you know when you these things that like if we're being real like this is shocking this is terrible these are horrible things and you know you can tweet all about it but then you know you you write or describe something that's on its face pretty terrible and then you say lmao like somehow i think it's like people trying to distance themselves like this isn't real or like this doesn't affect me like haha i'm laughing because it's so absurd yeah because from far away like if i remove myself 
through like an ironic lens i can just watch this and observe it and it's funny but Mm -hmm. if you take away the irony and you're actually just describing all this terrible stuff it's not um it's not so funny anymore and nobody wants to read about it in a tweet which i feel like you know the understanding is that like if you're on twitter there's earnest twitter but a lot of twitter is goofy you know ironic twitter and so you can't it seems wrong to like tweet something straight up. Like you Completely have earnestly. to hedge it. Like, yeah, yeah, you have right. to include these little markers of irony. Like yeah. you hate to see it. To signal yep. that you're like, you get it, you're there. Like you're, you know, a sentient person. I guess. I yeah. don't know. It's yeah. Funny. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I think irony, and we can see it in this example, and like several of the others that we've been looking at. Like it's performing a really important, just sort of public like tension release mm-hmm. um, function where people are worn down by this hyper normalized like you know a seven second clip of donald trump drinking water Mm -hmm. in a way that no one has ever drunk water (laughs) uh breaking new ground yeah Yeah. and like people are worn down by that and Mm -hmm. and i think yeah the these ironic linguistic devices are are a way of dealing with that yeah it's kind of perfectly encapsulated by that that cartoon that's so prevalent on the internet today of the uh, you know the dog with the hat sitting in the sitting in a burning kitchen and just saying this is fine yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, absolutely that's what the that that kind of i think encapsulates the feeling of of just being on the internets all the time and having to deploy that you know have a certain sense of irony just to distance yourself from like the the somewhat like apocalyptic and depressing nature of it all yeah Yeah. but But i think the critique is just that you know at some point you have to push past that and get offline and and try to do something yeah Yeah. absolutely well so i think that's a great note to leave it on uh you know no more no more irony log off uh, always sincere yes um (laughs) drink a lot of water Out of tiny glasses. Oh, yeah. Sorry. We're, we're being ironic again here now. <laughs> this has been a really fun reblurb. Uh, from all of us at Reverb, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. Love thank to you. have been here. Yes. What fun. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by Alex and Calvin. Our co-producer at large is Ben Williams. Special thanks this week goes out to Cameron Mozafari for helping with some of the research for this episode. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in. 